In the last few weeks or so, we've been talking about the king, unleashing the king. Many of you probably were wondering, what does that actually mean? I didn't hear any memo. No one came to me and said, what do you mean by unleashing the king? Well, in these last few weeks, we've been having some fun with some skits. And the purpose of it, you'll probably say, what was the purpose of that? Honestly, um, I want to share that with you. But these past few weeks, there were others who were, we had King Bruno and King Rick and even King Peter. King Peter. So we had King Peter. And if you can imagine every morning you're waking up and you're just putting on this robe, you would think this is silly for me to even do this in front of you because what you would think is that if I were waking up in the morning, go, honey, where's my coffee? Um, if I would say, honey, where's my eggs and my toast? She's like, go take a hike, pal. Go do it yourself. But can you imagine if we're walking around like this? Could you imagine? I mean, guys, I think uh, you'd be sleeping on the couch a few weeks or so in a few months. But here's the thing. The reason why I'm being so silly this morning again is because we have to ask that question. When we wake up in the morning, and if we're a believer in Christ and we don't spend the quality time that we should be doing every morning and giving our lives to Jesus, this is what we're doing when we, when we face Christ. We stand there, say, Lord, I'm busy. I got this. It's all taken care of. Lord, I'm the king. I got this. I'll call on you when I need to. Now, you would not admit to that, neither would I. You and I would say, no, that's not what I do. I do not put on some silly old king outfit and say, I'm the king. No one would admit to that. But when we have to ask that question, if I'm not spending the quality time that I should, and I'm so busy in my schedule, am I saying that without really saying that? See, when we were talking about in these last few weeks, too, is that we were talking about a scepter. And a scepter represents authority for the king. And as we played that silly role, we kept talking about holding the scepter in the first week and then loosening the scepter in our hands. And now, last week, we talked about letting it go. But we know that in the book of Matthew, it talks about Jesus being the king as we recognize that. And so, this week, as we're finishing up and we're thinking about the king... We have to always be mindful of what is God saying to us. Who is the king? Because if the king is you and I, and if we're the king of our own little worlds, are we going to unleash that king in our lives? Or are we going to decide whether or not to drop the scepter and say, Jesus needs to be king of my life. And if he needs to be king of my life, then I want to unleash that king in my life. See, what it comes down to is this. Who's sitting on your throne? The throne of your life. Who's the center of your life? Is it Jesus or is it you and I? I mean, that's what we're really saying in a nutshell. And I have to continually think through this and ask that question because no one would say, I have the power. I can do whatever I want to do. But people in the world are doing that. And each person in the world, whether you want to believe it or not, is trying to control their destiny, their life, of what's going to happen next. And we as believers, when we live in this world, in this individualistic society of a Western mindset, when we're living in that world, we get taken in. We get hijacked to believe that we can control our world. And then what happens is we feel like we have to work harder, not smarter, to get what we want because we see everyone else getting what they want. And so power comes in a subliminal message. We see it all over in media. We see it in our commercials. We see it in our TV shows. And what happens is these messages come we don't think about. It. And then when we have to admit something, we say, wait a minute. I can't admit that I would wake up in the morning and put on a king outfit with a scepter in my hand. But we'd have to ask those continual questions. And today, when I was thinking about today, as it's Christmas Eve, most people want to be with their families. Most people would say, you know what, I'd love to be at church, but I have a family commitment. Most who have family who don't know Christ, they want to make that commitment. I think it's a great commitment because I've had to fight that battle for years. When my family, my blood, would say to me, why is it you're spending all that time with church, but what about me? 
And so I've had to ask those questions to myself. What am I doing? Am I making a difference for Christ in wherever I go? Or am I walking around saying, no, I have to go to church. You're not as valuable as church. And so when you're asking that, that continual question, who holds the scepter? We have to finish this this week still making the statement when we hold, if you're looking at your outline, when we hold the scepter, are we holding back or we hold back the true king's power? I ask the question, are we holding back the king's power? I make the statement, we hold back the, the true king's power. See, whenever we're holding the scepter and we hoist it, we're saying, God, I don't need you right now. I got this. But when we do that, we're saying to God, I really don't need your power. I don't need your presence. I don't need you to provide for me. I got this. But if I ever fall into, offline, I will make sure to come to you. You're kind of my crutch, my rescue when I need it. See, often we, we don't admit to that, but we can see God in that way. And that's why when we hold the scepter, when it says the next slide, it says, we have to ask continually, what is it that we're doing? We talked about in the previous weeks about holding the scepter could be fear, control. It could be the, the, the change that we have to go through in our lives that we don't want to. And so often we have to. But here's a few other things we need to talk about this morning about when we hold the scepter. It could be other things. See, we don't realize that when we hold the scepter and we hold back the power of the true king, really our power is limited. What do I mean by that? Well, it seems, it seems to me this kind of way. Just, see, when we have, we have the power to choose, we have the power to possibly change people's minds, and we have the power to, whether re- to respond to people or not. We could also have the power to overcome substance abuse when we see people who go through addictions. I mean, everybody has an addiction. It's just whether which one is it. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, everybody has one. It could be sports, TV, it could just be something else. But in all of that, we have to ask ourselves, is our power limited though? So when we learn to say no, we should, but we often say yes. Can, can we have the power to say no but so often we forget that we say yes. Why? Because people can be people pleasers. And so we feel like we have to say yes to everyone to please them. And so we have to say, I have the power to say no. So when people say to me, oh, you know, I, I, I've got so much on my schedule. I don't know what to do. I've got A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then all of a sudden I'm like, can you take out E and F and G and maybe take H and bring it up, and maybe instead of having 10 things on your list, you can get down to four. Oh, but then I couldn't say no to this, and I couldn't say no to this. And I, but wait a minute, I'm looking it over, and I'm thinking, you can say no to that, and you can say no to this, and no to this, and no to this, and they're like, no, 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 I just got to keep going, and they go running in circles, but they could say no, and they have the power to do that. But even if we have all these certain little powers that we have, still the question remains, What happens when we pass on from this life to the next? Do we have the power to determine where we go next? Do we have the power of life? Do we have the power to determine if, say, God, I'm not ready to die, so I'm not going to die today. I'm going to check that today I'm not going to die. Or, Lord, I definitely am going to go to heaven because I choose I'm going to go to heaven because I think I'm, I'm good and I'm not very bad and my good weighs out my bad. See, those questions... We can't answer. We don't have the power to. We don't have the power of life. And so we're limited. And all the other things we could do and having the power to choose, we can't choose ultimately what we want to do or not do when it comes to that. It's up to God. But we have to answer the question. What does it mean to be here on earth. See, 28, 29 years ago, I asked that question right about this time of year. I didn't know why I was existing. I went to Catholic church and I really had no interest in it. And I would go and after I would go into church and come out, you didn't want to know what I used to say. And what me and my brother used to argue back in the use of words that we had. But what was happening was I would go into a building, come out and it never changed me. And all those years, I used to ask, why am I here? What's the purpose? Why was I created? Someone asked me, why is that Jesus on a cross? I'm like, I have no idea. I just have to go to church because my mother told me I have to go. But too often is that we don't know. But I never had that power. 
See, the Bible talks about a dunamis power, but I don't have that power, only God. That's a power that is only divine and supernatural. But see, this is what the Bible says, that if I put my trust in the limited power of man, he said, cursed is the man that puts his trust in man. So we're limited in our power. So when we hold the scepter, we say, wow. Then, two is our plans lack commitment. What do you mean? You're saying, wait a minute, Bruno. I'm a a pretty committed individual. When I tell someone I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. Rightfully so. I'm sure you intend in every every situation, you intend to follow through in every plan. But what happens is we don't. We fail at times, not in not intentionally, we just because our schedules are so, in, so overwhelming that at times we make a commitment and then we have to fall back. How many times do I do that? I do it often. I mean well. I, I want to help everybody I can, but then I come back and say, man, that was out of my control. Or sometimes I just say, man, I'm overloaded. I have to back out of my commitment. It's not as though you mean to be an uncommitted individual, but things begin to change. So we're limited in that. We, we really can't keep our guarantee and commitment. But God can. See, when God makes a promise, it's a guarantee. When God makes a commitment to us, he doesn't pull pull back on it. See, when God makes a commitment, he follows through. It's not as though we're terrible people, but we're limited. And our power is limited, and our plans of commitment are limited. You know, I looked up on a research, um, a Pew research from 2014. They were talking about millennials, and they did a research saying that millennials today, from all the different generations, are committing themselves less to everything in their lives, especially to marriage. You know, when we look at the different generations since 1960, in 1960, 65%, the baby boomers, were married, were committed to marriage, okay? In 1980, the boomer generation, it went down to 48%. Then the Gen X in 1997, it went down to 36%. Today, or close to today, since 2013, the millennials, from, they're saying from 18 to 32, are committed 26% to marriage. Which means what? It means that more people are living together than ever. It means, is right or wrong? Well, according to the scriptures, is that right or wrong? I'll let you answer that question. <laughs> But I'm going to tell you this, that's what's happening. Why is it? There was, a, there was another article where a millennial actually said the five reasons why millennials struggle with commitment. One is choice overload. A typical person does not have the ability to make a decision until they're 20, an adult decision until they're 25 years old. Yes, they're labeled 18 as an adult, but really it's 25 years old. That's medically. But here in this particular generation, what's happened is, this generation, she, this particular woman said, <clears throat> is one of spoiling of choice. Too much choice is paralyzing. The more options we have, the more we fear we'll make the wrong decision. The choice overload idea was first discovered in the detail by a psychologist in 2000. And in research, they found shoppers were more likely to buy a jar of jam if presented with six choices. When presented with 24 types of jam, the shoppers experienced this decision paralyzed, they said, because they weren't sure which commitment to make to which jar, jar of jam. And so it's like, wow. So we're talking about a young people today. I often hear people say to me, oh, well, you know, they're a millennial. They can't make a commitment to anything. They'll say they're going to be there, and then they don't show up. How frustrating that is when you have committed your time, your time slot, you're on the schedule, you sit there, and you're um, they're only like three minutes late. Let me just check to make sure. Text them. Um, they're not answering yet. <laughs> 12 minutes go by. All right, this is getting ridiculous. I'm already 12 minutes, and I already got plenty to do. They need to be here. All of a sudden, it's like they don't even show up. And commitment becomes that issue. And they're overwhelmed. Media messages. Do you know that 81% of Facebook users are millennials? That's why so often anybody over the age of 32, don't Facebook them (laughs) because they're not going to be on Facebook. How many of you put your messages out there and you want everybody to know what you're doing? You know, when you look down Facebook, hi, I'm having a great day in park. I'm enjoying the sun. And they have their face there with their dog. And I'm sitting and I see 150 likes. I'm like, what? I mean, 150 likes because a person sits there with their dog saying they're having a great day. But if you would go into the likes and you would find out how old they were, they were probably millennials. 
because that's how they communicate with one another. And so this media, the media messages are continually going on and on and on. Good or bad, that's how they're moving towards that. And so the app equation as well, they were talking about. With social media, we constantly bombard with the highlight reel of everyone's life. We can only observe the best of people in their relationships. In reality, there are positive and negative feelings and situations. So we're constantly dealing with inadequacy and insecurity. See, what they're saying is that the media messages, every time you find something out about someone, if you ever go through Facebook, and if you're 81% of you are millennials, then you're going to look in Facebook. But when you look down at Facebook, you see how people make messages, and they say they're doing great, everything's great in their family. And then you look at your life, and you're like, man, I'm a loser loser, loser. And you walk around and inside, you feel like the biggest loser. Why? Because you look at everyone else, how great they are, and then, you, and then you compare it to your own life. And then what happens is, is then they're saying there's research out there that more people are getting depressed by looking at Facebook. And why are millennials struggling with commitment? Why are they struggling? Because they're dealing with inadequacy. They're dealing, they don't have mentors, the broken families, the mother and the fathers are not together. They don't have a peer, they don't have a mentor they can commit to. So they struggle with someone helping them through it. They didn't have a grandfather growing up, they don't have a father, they don't know. How, do you, how many of you recall when you had a grandfather or your father that was there for you when you were going through a tough time and you could talk it, talk it out with them? But too often, they don't have that. And when you can't, you and I, we used to be able to make those commitments because we had someone that we could look to. They don't have that today. So today is most all its commitment. Third, it's our purpose to serve self. We're all about self. We're self-centered, self-focused, self-interest. And some of us would say, wow, that's just really heavy, Bruno. Yes, because we are. Because we're focused on what we need to accomplish. We all fail in this area. We all fall in line to this. Even the Bible says in, in, in 2 Timothy 3, it says, verse 1, it says, but understand this, Paul was saying this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, inverse, uh, slanders, without self-control, savage, opposed to what is good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, loving pleasure rather than loving God. Wow. I mean, if that list doesn't compose to what we're going through today in our 21st century here in a postmodern world, in a Western American society with individualistic mindsets, I don't know what else does. But Paul was saying this 2,000 years ago, and it's still prevalent today. But the problem is, are we going to admit this? Because when we hold the scepter and say, no, I'm none of those things, then we're holding back God's power. When we say that I'm not, selfish, I'm not selfish, I'm not focused on myself, I really do care about others, what happens is we're missing out on God's power. The times when I grew closer and closer to God is when I had to come to admit I was a selfish person. I was arrogant, conceited, and full of myself. That was when the time when I really found the goodness and presence of God in my life. It was the times when I thought I was okay that the Holy Spirit had to convict me. And through those times, I grew closer and closer and closer to the Lord. And each one of us, it's a hard message, but we have to continually say, what is it that God's trying to challenge us with? Lastly, our pride consumes us. There are eight types of pride. But one of them could be charity pride. When you're too proud to accept help or charity, even when you're going through a tough time. I went through this. God had to change that in me. When you find yourself as a pastor and God challenges you with finances and he teaches you and challenges you, pride is pushed away. I can't, can't have pride anymore. I struggled with that at the beginning. When people are starting to give me envelopes and gifts, I'm like, what's this? I don't understand this. They're like, 
people would tell me, Bruno, you have to accept that you're a pastor now. We got to give you envelopes. But see, in my culture, in the Italian culture, we call it la busta. La busta is when you get an envelope at the wedding. You know, after the wedding, you're just walking by in the line and you're giving out the envelope. See, look, Salsi's going like this, even Alice. You give the la busta. La busta is just something you get. It's like you expect it. Hey, where's my gift? You know, you sit there. I remember when my brother was married in 1992 and I'm sitting there and my father and my mother are sitting down and getting all the envelopes and my father's sitting like this. He licked his thumb and he's just counting the money. And I'm laughing. It's, it's nothing mafioso or anything like that. It's just the fact that he's just counting the money because you expect it. But I never expected it even to this day. Why? Because we serve the king. I, I got to be honest with you. God's taught me to the point where I'm not absolutely concerned about money when it comes to that. God had brought my wife and I through trial after trial. And we've learned now that we can't hold our up high. We have to lay it before the king. Because finances are something. Maybe some of us, we don't have that problem. That was one of the things God had to bring us through. And praise God, he challenged us and taught us that we don't have to hold on to that. But pride can be that, a stubborn pride. You, you won't back down on a position even though you know you're wrong because you're too proud. It's a stubborn pride. We all go there. Or perfectionistic pride. You throw away a chocolate cake you made for your family because it doesn't meet your high standard. Some of you look at me saying, I don't even make chocolate cake. I love chocolate cake. Anybody who makes chocolate cake, let me know. Just come and talk to me. But the idea is that the standard is so often I hear my wife saying that, oh, it's just not good enough. I said, honey, will you stop? It's great. She's like, no, it's just not good enough. I said, because your standard's too high. Let it go. My stomach's loving it. (laughs) Can't you see? I mean, like, come on. But see, here's the thing, though. That pride seeps in, and we don't even know it's there. Or intellectual pride. You believe you are intellectually superior to humans, and because you are superior, you don't have to conform to the same moral principles as the rest of the world. In fact, your nonconformity, your moral lapses and moral depravity prove your superiority. We all struggle with that. But all these challenges are set in. And so here's what I ask this question. I say, do you want to unleash this king? Does any one of us want to do that? Or do we just drop the scepter, take off the garb, and lay it before the king? Is that what we have to do? I don't want to unleash this king in my life. I know in my life that king is waiting to control. And I got to get him off that throne by saying, Lord, today, not my will, but your will be done. Please let me die to self. Because it's not about me. It's a choice I must make every day. It's a choice we as believers are called to do every day because we sit in pride, we sit in arrogance, we sit in all these things that we think we need. We are entitled. That's what's happening today with the millennial age. They're entitled. They deserve what they deserve. But grace is not deserved. It's an oxymoron in my mind. Because you don't deserve something. Grace is unmerited favor. It's not merited. And so we have to drop it. When we drop the scepter before the king, we have to understand that God is doing that work. So I chose a passage today that's very familiar, but it's not Luke chapter 2. It's Luke chapter 1. And I want you to just turn with me there as we look at a very familiar passage that is part of the Christmas message, and it's the announcement of Mary talking with Elizabeth of the so-called King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the birth, the foretold birth of Jesus. And I, I want us to look at chapter 1, verse 26, and it says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, the sixth month is mentioned there for purpose. Look with me at verse 24 and 25. It says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. 
saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So Luke is writing from the fifth month in verse 24 to where he highlights the next month. Now, in a narrative in the scripture, you have to understand, sometimes we don't see these particular details, but it's important to highlight because even so, Elizabeth said that the Lord looked upon me. See, that word, looked upon me, means that he was gracious upon me. He was, she was carrying John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one who was to come before the Messiah. And see, we have to understand this, that, that, that Jesus was clear coming after, but the, he wanted to mention this because it was a prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it lines up with Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, talking about John the Baptist to come. It's a prophecy that he is to be the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. What's so important to understand, I just throw this in as a caveat, is that you have Jehovah Witness in the religion that they believe Jehovah is separate from Jesus, that Jesus is a separate God. And that in their Bible, in Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 3, it says, make ways, prepare the ways for Jehovah. Then you look in Matthew 3, 3, it says, prepare the ways for Jehovah. Who's Jehovah? Jesus. Jesus is Jehovah, but they will never admit to that. But in their Bible, it's true. And see, they would separate them, but Jesus, who is Kyrios, Lord, Yahweh, Kyrios in the Greek, in the Septuagint of the Old Testament, Yahweh being the self-existing I am God, connects the two together. So Jehovah is Kyrios Yahweh. Kyrios being the Greek word of Yahweh. And so it's important for us to understand that they were recognizing even prior to Jesus being born that he is the Lord God to come in flesh. So important as we know that as Christians and we understand it, we have to see that the scripture confirms it. Now verse 26, as we see this, is Gabriel was sent from God. Now, I stopped there and I said, sent from God, an angel. Angelos in the Greek means a messenger of God. And he was sent from God, meaning God was behind all this. It was a plan. It was an event. It was something foretold of a prophecy, but it was before past eternity that it was set in order. So here he was sent on a mission. It says that in the Greek word for sent is to dispatch someone for the achievement of some objective. It's a word that's used even when we're using for an apostle who's sent out. So the angel was sent by God, indicating it was a plan from the Lord. And we see further, as it says, and to, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. We have engaged or betrothal. And a betrothal was a, it's, it's in the Greek, it means to be promised to be married, woo and win. Guys, did you know that you wooed your lady when you said, will you marry me? Do you know that you wooed them? I mean, the Greek says that you wooed them. Now, the question is, ladies, do you still feel like your man is wooing you? Go ahead. Guys, hold on a second now. Guys, did you get that present to show them that they still do something in your heart? When you look at her and and you're like, She's so fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, did you, did you, you know, I mean, is, is that what's happening? I know when I look at my wife, I'm in love, right? Right? And she's just like, Gosh. I said, honey, it don't matter. I love you. You're my girl. I love you, right? But the thing is, is that are you wooing her still? I'm trying to help you out, ladies. You're all looking like, come on, Pastor Bruno, help me out. I don't think there's much wooing going on. I need to give them some energizer batteries in their system. But the idea is that you're wooing them and see the engagement, you should always feel like you're still in that engagement period. Look at your ladies and make sure you're still in that. Amen? Amen. Okay, I'm trying to wake you guys up. Okay, so here's the thing. But an engagement was the first stage of being married. See, here in America, when we get engaged, we can get out. But at that time, once you're engaged, you're set in. And once you're set in, you're committed. Now, why is that important? Because an angel's coming to Mary and saying, 
you're about to be conceived with a child. And Mary's like, what? I haven't been with anybody. How is that physically possible? Because she knows she's committed, but they haven't gone to the second stage. And that second stage was a year later they would walk around in a ceremony and then be committed to marriage. And so we understand that, that this virgin is engaged, but she's to conceive as a virgin. So it's a miracle in and of itself, as we know, as we, we mentioned. But Joseph, there's a key word there, Joseph in the house of David, in the lineage of David. We have to understand, too, in the book of Matthew, we know the genealogy is the lineage of, da- of jo- Joseph, where all the kings were listed, 42 generations. Well, we see that it starts and ends at Jesus, and it starts with Abraham. And we recognize this, that Jesus was not the legal biological father. I mean, Joseph was not the legal biological father of Jesus. And so we know that it's mentioned here. Luke is mentioning this. And David, David being the fact that David was the king in order because of the prophecy, the Davidic throne. And so we see that. So We see, too, that Mary is mentioned here in verse 27. And she's a virgin. But when we look at Matthew chapter 116, we have to understand something here. Because I want to turn to uh, chapter 1 of verse 16 in Matthew. Because when we read down the list and we see this genealogy, we get to verse 16. And it gets down to the last part where it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph... The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, here's, this is important, because in verse 12, when we look at in Jeremiah, and we're not going to look at that now, but in Jeremiah, in, verse, in, uh, in chapter 24, and verse 22 and 30, in Jeremiah, there's a highlighting of it, because what's being said there is that there was a curse that happened on the lineage of Joseph. And Joikonoya, which is mentioned here, was cursed. And God, the Lord God, removed the line of David at that time. So you have a cursing in that line, and then it goes all the way down to Jesus. 14 times 3, 42 generations. So through Jesus, it's very clear here, through Jesus, or through Joseph, Jesus could not be the Messiah. He couldn't be the king because his line was cursed. Also, he is not formally a biological son. But why is it that Matthew then interjects uh, Mary in verse 16? Now, why does he do that? Because it falls in the line of Mary. Now watch. Of whom, in verse 16, is a feminine singular form in the Greek. It's a preposition And that phrase there indicates that it doesn't come from Joseph, that Jesus does not come from the line of Joseph, but from Mary. And even in chapter 3 of Luke, when you're looking at chapter 3, verse 23, it's highlighting the same thing. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. This then enclosed. Heli is is, is not even part of Joseph. It's part of Mary's genealogy. That, that person is part of Mary's family. So this genealogy in chapter 3, I believe, is the genealogy of Mary. And so Mary is the one in whom God uses to bring forth the Messiah. Because as you look down and look down, it started with Jesus and went all the way down in verse 38 of chapter 3 in Luke, going all the way back to Adam. And so there's a genealogy that is different from chapter 1 in Matthew. And so we know that when you go back to chapter Luke 1, what do you see? It says, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. O favored one means bestowed or gracious, the one who bestowed. I've shown favor on you. But too often, Mary in a religion called the Catholic Church has made her to be the bestower of grace full of grace. In the Latin Vulgate, it's interpreted full of grace. But really, in the scriptures, it has nothing to do with that. It's God who's bestowing his grace on Mary. And as he's bestowing his grace on Mary, he's saying, you are favored by God. 
It's not as though you have the favor because you are holy and righteous in and of yourself. Mary was a sinner in need of a savior. And so it's great woman of faith, no question. A woman who believed God, but a woman who needed a savior. And see, it's important for us to understand because see, in the first point there, Jesus, if you and I are gonna drop our scepter, this is who we have. We have Jesus as who bestows grace on us. Without grace, you and I would never have hope. And without grace, there would be no possibility of having a relationship. In fact, we have to understand Christmas as God giving us grace, grace upon grace. And that Jesus came not in garb, like a true king would come, not with a scepter, not even with a scepter. I mean, in Genesis chapter 49, it says he should come in the line of Judah with a scepter. He's the lion, the line of Judah. He didn't even come in that way. He just came in a stinky old manger, a servant, but yet he bestows grace upon us. And it's important to understand that. And the Lord is with you. When he mentions that, the angel, that is covenant language. In Genesis 39, 3, it says this, that the Lord was with Joseph, verse 3. The Lord was was with Joseph, verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph, verse 23. In Judges 6, 12, the Lord was with Gideon. 2 Samuel 7, 3, the Lord was with David. And now the angel says, the Lord is with you, Mary. It is God who bestows grace through Jesus. So it's understood because... She stands there, and the angel's there, and it says, verse 39, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern as to what sort of greeting this might be, meaning she was afraid. She was confused in the Greek. It says she was perplexed. She didn't know. Why? Because she saw a divine being. Any one of us would be scared out of our bejeebies. Why? Because we can't even see a horror movie. Can you imagine? Because when we stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he has the power to judge. He judges, judgment's given to him by the Father, John 5, 22. He will have judgment. And if you ever recognize that when people bowed down before Peter or other apostles or even an angel, they said, stand up, stand up. But when they bowed before Jesus, Jesus didn't say, stand up. Why? Because he's God. And he came in the form of flesh for you and I. And so Jesus is the bestower of grace, the one who gives grace. Even in Ephesians 1, 6, it says, he caused to, 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 to give an acceptance of. It says in Ephesians 1, 6, that, um, that when we were accepted, the word that we have for accepted in Ephesians is highlighted there because it's grace upon grace. It goes in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, he has bestowed grace upon us. That's what the word in the Greek means. And so we have to realize that, that God is doing that. Also, Jesus is the Savior. As you look again at chapter 1 of Luke, Jesus is the Savior. And it goes on, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves. The Lord is salvation in Hebrew. Yeshua. Jesus came to die for sinners. Jesus came to save his people from their sin, Matthew 1, 21. The Jews were living under the yoke of the law. Their understanding was simple. It was religious leaders believed that if they kept the law, they would gain right standing with God. However, the Lord came in incarnate flesh. He came in the likeness of flesh to save sinners. Grace, the Savior, grace. That's what the Christmas story is about, grace upon grace. Also, three, Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the Most High God. It says in verse 32, it says, He will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him to, him to the throne of his father David. You know, when I think of the Most High God, it takes me to Isaiah chapter 14, 12 through 15. You're saying, now, Bruno, why does that take you there? Because I, I have to share this with you. When I think about it, I think about what Satan tried to do. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, we have the famous five I wills. It's a depiction of Satan through the king of Babylon. And he says this, in verse 13, it says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. This is a depiction of Satan. I will ascend to heaven. Heaven is the only abode for the Father. God hangs out in heaven. The only time Satan's up in heaven is when he's accusing the brethren. But he says, I will ascend into heaven, meaning I'll be above God's throne. He goes on to say this, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, meaning the king of Babylon, what the Canaanite gods did is they had this congregation, this area, the mountain congregation, and the king thought that they could exceed above the gods. And then it says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. See, when you and I are holding up the scepter, and I know you're not going to admit to this, but I will, that what we're saying is we're saying it within our hearts, God, I don't need you. I can control my life. You and I would never admit that, but we exceed ourselves at times over God by trying to control all the decisions in our lives. Instead of being willing to say, God, I'm willing to drop the scepter and allow you to work in my life. That it's when God begins to do that work. Because Satan, he wanted to be above. God is saying, no, you must surrender. See, this is why he was saying in verse 32, he went on and he said this, he goes, and the Lord will give him a throne of the father David. Again, the Davidic covenant, a house a throne, a kingdom. And the Davidic covenant was in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you look at that, you just, when I read that, I just, I'm, I'm amazed by the covenants because you have the Abrahamic covenant, you have the Davidic covenant, and you have the new covenant. And they're coming together in progression. And when you see the progression that happens, you start to begin to wonder, wow, Lord, you're amazing. This was a prophecy that was mentioned two over almost close to 2,000 years ago. And Lord, you had a purpose for it. Why? Because in the line of David, the Messiah would come. We know this. We've been seeing this for years. You've been going to church for 30 and 40 years, and you hear this message every Christmas morning. Or you hear it during the church time. But what does that mean? How does that reflect in our lives? I mean, is he really the king of our lives? Do, if he really is, then we want to unleash that king. But you and I have to battle every day and say, which king am I going to unleash today? King Bruno or King Jesus? And see, Jesus was proclaimed through David as a forever kingdom. And this is a prophecy and it's important for us to understand, he says, he shall build a house, first thing, for my name, the name of Jesus. I will establish the throne on his kingdom forever, the millennial kingdom. I will be to him a father, the father saying to the son, and he will be to me a son. It's even mentioned in Hebrews. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. This is referring to the human kings. With the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But by steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. This is the Messiah. Your throne shall be established forever. And that's what this angel, this angel sent by God from heaven, brings the message. And the message is from a prophecy over 1,500 years prior. And he brings the same message. Your throne will be here forever and ever and ever. See, that's a guarantee. That's when we drop our scepter, we're guaranteed to have that kind of king. The one who controls the things in our lives. The one who knows when we're going through a difficult time. The one who knows that when we, when we go through trials and tribulations and struggles and difficulty, that he is the eternal king. 
that he is the Messiah, that Jesus is the eternal king. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. This is the messianic office. Jesus plays all those three roles. And this is the king whom we drop our scepter before. But I got to ask you that question. Are you afraid of God's presence? Am I afraid of God's presence? Do we fear like Mary feared or even Zacharias just in the previous narrative in chapter one when they see the angel in the presence of God, they were confused and perplexed. Are you and I confused and perplexed before the presence of God? I'll tell you, we could be if we're holding on to this. We will fear God, not in a good way. You can revere him or you can be afraid of him. And sometimes we're afraid of him because we're spending more time holding this rather than letting it go and dropping it. See, we'll know the true presence and power of God when we drop the scepter. We will understand and realize that the true king can handle the impossible through you and I. See, no matter the challenge for control in our lives, no matter when we want to control it, God is saying no. You know, I don't know if we understand what Mary was going through at that time. She was betrothed. She was about to conceive a child. She had no clue what was going on. She didn't know how she could conceive without being with Joseph. And here she says that in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? But here she was concerned too. What would the people say? Will they think I've committed adultery? Will they stone me? Will they excommunicate me? Will they pull me out of this area? Well, I know I will be harassed and embarrassed by everybody. She was going through that because she didn't know how to control her life. And she was afraid, no matter the fear, she went through this fear. She went through this difficulty. How many of us, when we're going through that fear, do we really believe that God can do the impossible in our lives? When there's something going on in your life that you don't know, when you have a bill you know you can't pay, when you have your child who's wayward, when you don't know what to do with the job, you don't have a job. You don't know what to do with the child in your life. And you're, all of a sudden you're saying, this is impossible, God. I don't know how in the world you're going to make it possible. God's going to say, wait a minute. I made a virgin birth happen. I made that was, was it virtually impossible in this world. Possible. I made it possible for my son to come on earth to die for sin. I made it possible to raise people from the dead. I made it possible to make the lame to walk and the blind to see. I think I could handle that one. <laughs> see, God, that's what he's saying. But it, it, you and I can grab anything from this Christmas message. Is God can do the impossible. If you and I would just drop our scepters and say, God, do the impossible in my life. I got to be honest with you. If you and I don't drop the scepter, nothing is going to change. We just live in this mundane life and we think things should change when we live in a mundane way. We just want things to just keep going the way they go, but we expect God to change things according to how we want them. So no matter the change, whether it's in this church, whether it's in your life, God can do the impossible. But you gotta believe it. It's faith, it's trusting. See, this is what Mary was able to do with confronted with this impossibility. She didn't say, that's it, I'm out, this is impossible. I, I can't, God, I can't even make sense of this. This doesn't make sense. No, this is, this is how she responded in verse 38. She said this, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word, your will, Lord. I will submit, and the angel departed. See, the angel said, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary says, then Lord, do it. I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to figure it out, Lord. I don't have to hold this. I don't have to control it. I'm afraid. I don't know what you're going to do, but you know what, Lord? I'm dropping it. You can do the impossible in my life. See, we are called to be a servant in submission to his will. That's really what it is. 
God wants to do the impossible, but you and I have to drop the scepter before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the bestower of grace. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the eternal King. He has an eternal kingdom. He has the house of Israel all in his order. He's going to be the the millennial King. It's all in his hands, and all we have to do is drop our scepter. And God could do the impossible. See, too often we as Christians, we just want to control everything. We want to control our responses. We want to control what God does. We want to make sure we know. We want, we're national inquirer minds. We all want to know. We do it all the time. The biggest gossipers in this world are the people in the church. It's a fact. I've talked to people. People rather not deal with Christians and rather deal with non-Christians. How many times have I heard my brothers and sisters saying, man, dealing with Christians is a pain. I'd rather just deal with non-Christians. Because we're not dropping our scepter. Guys, listen, it's Christmas, and I want you to have a great time, but I've got to challenge us. If we don't drop our scepters, if we don't believe God to do a great work here, or anywhere for that matter, we're not going to see God at his full power. I've learned that in my life, and I'm still learning. The greatest place to be is when we drop our scepters before God. And I want to encourage you. It's a great message when God says to you, I have a Savior who loves you deeply, who cares for you, wants to meet that in your need. Let me do in the impossibility in you. As the worship team is coming up, I just want to encourage you. Let this be a joyous time with your families. Let this be a time where we can rest. Let this be a time where we can enjoy our loved ones. But guys, I got to be honest. I want to see God do a great work here at this church. I do. I, 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 I know you guys think, you know, I, I want to see him do it. And I believe you do too. And in order to do that, we have to be willing to sacrifice by dropping our scepters. 91% either moderately or willing strongly to make a sacrifice. That's what the center report said. Well, here's your first step of sacrifice. Drop your scepter. Let Jesus be the true king of our lives and your life specifically. So let me pray and then the worship team will lead us into our last song. But think about that this week and ask, the, ask that question. Father, thank you for this time. I just pray that we would be reminded. It's a hard message. You've been giving us some hard messages. But I pray that you would remind each person in this room and those who have gone to be with family today that, Lord, you do love them deeply. I pray for them. I pray for each person here that they would understand that you want to help them through their struggle, through their difficulty, through their pride, through their arrogance, through the desire to not change. God, do that work in us. Lord, you love us. You want to do the impossibility. You want to take this church to a place they've never been before. Lord, I pray that you would do that. And allow them to see the beauty of your son. He was born in a manger. He's the savior. He's the Messiah. He's the eternal king. He is the bestower of grace. God, I pray that we would place our eyes focused on Jesus. In Jesus' name.